Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, to our holiday edition of She Said, She Said. We hope that you're listening as you're driving around, shopping, stopping for a cocoa or a coffee, and making lots of merry. Today, we have an early holiday present for you all, one that you are going to love and enjoy, because one of the most respected Beatles music experts across the universe is here with us to take you on a sentimental journey through the Beatles' wide album. How's that for a gift from me to you? And speaking of gifts from me to you, don't forget to order your copies of my Fab Four Recipe Records cookbooks. The original cookbook contains easy, delicious, and unique recipes inspired by songs from the 50s to the 90s. I also have the Groovy's 60s Cookbook Recipe Records, a tribute to the Beatles, and the newest member of the Recipe Records family, the Rolling Scones. Let's spin the bite together. When you order, I'll sign and date the books for you and get them out pronto for your loved ones. So go to lanastag.com and get those gifts ready to roll today. And while you're there, sign up for my monthly newsletter filled with great rock and roll info and savings. I will second that emotion. She has some fantastic recipes, lots of fun surprises for you. So get to lanastag.com. Hey, guys. It is Jude Sutherland-Kessler here, and I am Lena's partner in Up to No Good, the griff on the street, as we say in Dear Liddy Pool, is that I'm on Santa's naughty list this year. And as the author of the John Lennon series of narrative biographies, hey, that's, that's fine by me, but inspired by Lena's good little girl offer, as it were, I'm <laughs> going to be signing and dating all orders of my four books in the John Lennon series in these days leading up to Hanukkah and to Christmas. And just as she's doing, I will swiftly ship them out to all of your Beatles friends and to you because I think you will just love walking through John's life almost day by day from his birth up to 1964 thus far. I'm starting on Volume 5, which is going to take you through 1965, so there's a lot ahead for you to enjoy in this highly researched, heavily documented series about John and the Beatles. So place your orders, your holiday orders, today at johnlennonseries.com. And this week, I'm going to do something special. I'm going to include a special card for you. It's handcrafted by Noelle Stevens. Most of you know Noelle from the Fest for Beatles fans. She made these beautiful cards out of old copies of Bill Harry's original Mersey Beat. So they're not just cards. They are frameable collector's items. So check out the books. Order them at johnlennonseries.com. 
Oh, and you will be so delighted. I have heard so many great reviews of Jude's latest book, which, of course, I have my utmost respect for the book. But I um, I know that you will have a a very merry holiday, and your loved ones will as well if you get a copy of that for them. So today we want to cover a lot of ground, and we also want to share a special message with you. In keeping with the spirit of caring and giving this, this season, we'd like to play a very short 30-second clip for you about a Beatles-themed fundraiser coming up in February of 2019, it's weird to say that, to defeat juvenile diabetes. When Jude and I attended the White Album Convention in November, we met Bill Koff and his friend Jeff, and each year they go to great lengths to put on this wonderful event and donate all proceeds to Juvenile Diabetes Foundation. So please give a listen to this special special message. Hey, Beetle people. This is Bill Koff, bass player for the Moondogs, inviting you to come to our upcoming White Album show on Friday, February 1st in Wilmington, North Carolina. You can get advanced tickets at our website, fab4jdrf.org. They're just 26 bucks, and all proceeds go to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Along with tickets, you'll find more info and even be able to see last year's Rubber Soul show at our website. That's F-A-B, the number four, jdrf.org. Hope to see you there. Well, that is going to be one fantastic event. And I we got to know Bill and Jeff, and they're such nice guys. So if you live in the Carolinas or Georgia or Tennessee, you really need to make plans to be there, not only because it's going to be a wonderful Beatles event, but definitely to help defeat juvenile diabetes. February 2019, strangely enough, is just around the corner. So <laughs> mark it down. It sounds great. I, I would wish that I lived close enough to be there. And Lena, I've really talked about trying to make plans to be there um, the next go-around in 2020. So if you live close, make it a priority. Now, we have a special guest today, and I don't know if he's on the line or not yet. Um, if you are listening, special guest, and you have not been able to get through to us, make certain that you have pushed one to get into the host mm-hmm. queue. I know you're listening to the show as you're waiting, so make sure that you have pushed one to get into the queue. Our guest today was with us at that brilliant, and I mean brilliant, White Album Conference that was chaired by Dr. Ken Womack. What a weekend it was. Phenomenal. In fact, he was one of the featured presenters at the conference. On the very first night of the conference, Dr. Womack had scheduled a magnificent event. Bruce Beiser and our guest today were the two experts who were selected to sit down with us On the stroke of midnight, we were all allowed to go into this room. The room was full of people who were getting ready to hear for the very first time the new digitally remastered White Album. And um, our guests and Bruce sat up on the stage, and they walked us through all the shades and nuances of the music. And that's what we've invited him to do, and I hope he's going to be with us to be able to do that for you today. 
And uh, Jude is absolutely correct. The listening party at the White Album Conference was really magical. And our guest, Scott Fryman, is not on the line yet, but we are going to hold on just a little while longer. Jude and I will go ahead and we'll kind of give you some some of the highlights from that wonderful conference. And as Jude mentioned, Dr. Ken Womack did a fantastic job of coordinating this conference. He was he was the uh, brilliant engineer of the entire event. It was it was truly magical. But the listening party for the newly remastered White Album was something. It was just a, a really special event in that we were listening to these sounds that had been had never been heard before and it was it was a really really groovy groovy evening uh do do you have some comments you'd like to add yeah um, well one of the things that we did get to hear and lena is infatuated with this are the Esher demos you know the beatles in may of 1968 prior to beginning their work in the emi studios on the white album and that went all through the summer and through the fall the work that they did very rarely did they ever work together only on john songs really were they asked to come together on Mo, paul had most of his ready to roll, and he would go off and record the song himself without involving the other Beatles, and that really became a bone of contention between them. Um, I mean, one of the songs that he did completely by himself was Mother Nature's Son, and there was a comment made by um, Ken Scott who said that things were rolling along that Paul and George Martin and Ken Scott were all finishing Mother Nature's Son. They had recorded it after that very lengthy day in which George had recorded Not Guilty 102 times. And they stayed behind to record the song. And then a few days later, they were engineering it when suddenly John and Ringo walked in. And to quote Ken Scott, you could have cut the tension with a knife for the 10 minutes that they were there. It was very, very uncomfortable because the other Beatles were very frustrated that Paul was going off solo on on the White Album LP and was not involving them. But John still was very much involving them. But they met together at George's home in May of 1968, his home, Ken Fonz, in Esher, to bring what they wanted to use on the White Album. And that is known today as the Esher, for years I think we said Esher, but we've been corrected as the Esher demos. And we're hoping that our guest today will be able to come back in January and go through those demos with you so that you can hear the trial songs that later became the very familiar White Album songs. Many of them were completely different from what you hear on the White Album, so we're hoping that we can do that. Lena, do we have Scott with us? We do not. And, you know, that is sometimes what happens um, with, with the live shows, sometimes the connections don't get, um, they don't make it. So that is just one of our, um, one of the, the things that happens with a live radio show. So, 
I'm guessing that Scott is not is not able to hear us um, because you did instruct him to press one. So, uh, Jude, do you want to go through and 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 mention any of the songs that we? Yeah, I would I would love to. Um, I've been very fortunate to be able to do this for Rod Quinn on ABC Radio out of Australia. So I've been spending hours and hours and hours researching these songs, and we'll kind of do what what Scott was going to do. Uh, we will take the next 15 minutes or so, and if he calls in at any point, Lana, just let me know, and we'll turn it over to him. Uh, but let's take one song off of each side and talk about those songs. And, of course, the songs that I am most familiar with are John's songs. So if you don't mind, those are the ones that we'll, we'll do. And then uh, when Scott comes, he can address some other things. But let's just start with Glass Onion off of side one. You know, there is a fallacy a big rumor that goes around that says that Glass Onion was written to make fun of those freaks, in quotation marks, who believe the Paul is dead controversy and that John was throwing out all kinds of clues to trip them up and to make fun of them. But if you think about it, the Paul is dead controversy didn't start until 1969, and this was being written and penned in 1968. And John always wrote songs on two different levels. He wrote on a very literal level, and he wrote on a much larger symbolic level. So he may have been, on some level, making fun of people who saw deep, dark meanings in everything that he wrote. He and Pete Shotton definitely did that when they wrote... Uh, I am the walrus. They were sitting in the kitchen and they saw pilchard semolina and they said, oh, let's throw that in there. We'll mm -hmm. see what they make of that. So there's definitely a part of John that likes to throw in funky symbolism to see what people will do with it and to get a little giggle out of it. But in Glass Onion, he himself tells you what the song is about. John had just gone through a very, very, very unhappy divorce after a 10-year romance and a six-year marriage to Cynthia Powell Lennon, and he had lost his wife. It, it's not the simple thing that people would have you believe. It wasn't just a, oh, I'm glad to be rid of her, I never loved her anyway kind of split. He loved Cynthia very much, and we could go into all of the quotes from Tony uh, Barrow, the Beatles press officer, who said that Cynthia was was John's rock and his peace. And from Larry Kane, who said that Cynthia centered John, from Art Schreiber and Ivor Davis, who were with John on the 1964 tour, and said he never missed a night calling her. I could give you lots of details about all the times that John went to see Cynthia voluntarily when he could have done other things, gone off on other trips with the Beatles, but instead he flew home to be with her. The divorce was a very unhappy one, and he had become enamored with the very bohemian avant-garde Japanese artist Yoko Ono. And to quote Bill Harry, Yoko had pursued him relentlessly, sending him notes and postcards and letters, showing up at everything that he went to, jumping into the limo between Cynthia and John when they were coming home from events and outings, asking for a ride home. She was always there, and John was tormented and did not know what to do. Finally, his fascination for Yoko outweighed his 10-year devotion to Cynthia and 
after trying to patch their marriage up many times. You know, there's a rumor that after the night that Cynthia found Yoko in her bed coat in her bedroom after she and John had slept together for the first time, that that was the end of the marriage. Not true. They were married for several more weeks. They tried to patch things up. John even asked Cynthia if she'd have another baby. She said, you'd be better off with that Yoko Ono. It was a long and arduous divorce. But after he got with Yoko, he was too busy trying to keep her, to make her happy, to please her, to change himself so that he would be what she wanted, a man who saw women as equals and treated them that way, Um, someone who was cleaner and neater and kinder and not the old John Lennon. And that took a lot of his attention. So he said, and this is a direct quote, John Paul has been trying for months to keep us together. He has always wanted to lead the band. So in Glass Onion, I wanted to say something to him. I wanted to say, you can have it. I've got Yoko. And he does. He says in there, here's a clue for you all. The walrus is Paul. And he hands the leadership of the Beatles in that song over to Paul, who takes it and runs with it for the rest of the Beatles' career. And it is a very intentional, very forthright statement by John in Glass Onion that he is relinquishing control of this group that he created in 1957, hand-selected the members, kept them together. Very landmark song, very sad song. So, you know, it's touching, and um, it's, it, it is laughing at the symbolism, but it is also very intentionally saying goodbye to his band as well as his marriage in 1968. And, uh, Lena, how do you how do you feel about Glass Onion? Is it one that you like or it just another oh, passing I've song? Always, yeah. Oh, I've always loved Glass Onion. I, I just love the images that he um, he brings up in 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 the song. But as as is most of John's, especially his later work, um, he does leave clues. He does get your mind to wandering, and he leaves it to you to try and sort it all through. So, thanks to <laughs> thanks to all of the research that you have done, we are able to, um, you know, dive in and and try to understand where John was coming from. I but but musically I've always loved the song and lyrically it is another one of his wonders. So what else do you have it for really me, Jude? <laughs> it really is. Well let's look at side two and again, you know, a great, great John song and it really goes along with what we were just talking about. I'm so tired. Mm. You know, there is a quote that you cannot find rest when it is your soul that is fatigued. And that is what happened to John in 1968. He is in this huge quandary about whether he's going to move forward with this woman who so reminds him of his mother, Julia, Yoko Ono. In fact, on the very last track of Side 2, when he sings this mission statement for his life, this love song to his mother, Julia, he intertwines images of Yoko and Julia into one. Julia, seashell eyes, that's, of course, Yoko. Wendy, smile, Yoko, ocean child, which is exactly what Yoko's name means in Japanese. He is so fascinated with this bold, strong, out-of-the-box woman that 
truly reminds him of his mother. In fact, in years to come, he will call her mother. She's about eight years older than he is. She's more worldly wise. She is a stranger, avant-garde, cutting-edge figure who induces him to enter that world, really intrigued by her. So he is trying to struggle with whether he will go off and leave Cynthia or whether he will stay true to his marriage. And it was a very difficult time. Cynthia, in her 2005 book, John, says that he would put his arms around her and tell her how much he loved her and how much he loved Julian, but then he would be dragged away again. And it was just so sad. She knew that the end was coming. In fact, when Paul and John went to New York to roll out Apple, she asked him, you know, let me go along with you. I mean, she could feel that this was about to happen. And he said, no, no, just go on holiday with your friends, and maybe the separation will be good for us. And, of course, that was the opportunity when he came back to London and she was still away on holiday. That's when he and Yoko got together at Kenwood and spent the night making those sounds on their recorder upstage, the new art and the artistic music that she was involved in, and then at sunrise ended up making love. But it was a very difficult time, and he tells you about that in I'm So Tired. He's singing not just about the need for sleep. John had always been an insomniac and had difficulty falling asleep because he couldn't shut his mind off. They say that during the writing of Sgt. Pepper, he didn't sleep for three weeks. But this is a different kind of tired. This is a tired when your spirit is crushed. And he said, I was in a deep depression in the spring of 1968, dot, dot, dot. I was in murder. I was in murder. He talked about the fact that he really considered at one point suicide. So when he sings this song, he's being very honest with you, very revealing. You can hear it in his voice. And man, when he says, I give you everything I got for a little peace mm. of mind, wow, it's pretty front and mm. center. What say you, Lena? Uh, I, I'm just fascinated. I'm 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 actually really in wonder and awe of you, Jude, <laughs> to uh, go through and and dissect these songs. I listen to them in the car, <laughs> so and I love and respect them. But but you uh, you are a wonder. So let's uh, let's move on to another one. Okay, side three. Oh, there's so many good ones on here that it's hard to know which one we want to do. Mm, there's so many good ones. But let's do, should we do a Paul one or should we do Stick With John? What oh, you say? I was, I was, let's stick with John. Okay. So we'll do Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey. Paul says that this song is about heroin, that monkey is a term for heroin. But the man who wrote this song, John Lennon, said that this is a song about him and about Yoko. He says that, you know, when he and Yoko first got together and he was kind of telling her what to do and treating her the way he used to treat Cynthia, she told him she wasn't going to be treated like that. And he said, well, women have always served me, my Auntie Mimi, my aunts, Cynthia. I'm not used to this equal thing. And she said, okay, there's a solution for that then. I'll have to leave because everything can't be about you. In that kind of atmosphere, I can't breathe. I will suffocate, so I'm going to leave. Well, <laughs> John changed this tune pretty 
safety quickly, mm-hmm. and he began not only to treat her as an equal, but to keep him by his side all the time in the studio and even in the bathroom. So uh, Yoko was there constantly, and he didn't ask the other Beatles what they thought about this and if they would mind her coming into the studio. He just brought her. Uh, in reaction, almost immediately, Paul starts bringing Francie Schwartz with him. He and Jane had just mm-hmm. broken up, and he was going through that short stint with Francie. So he starts bringing Francie, and eventually George begins to bring Patty in, but they're pretty put off by this. And Paul said in an interview to the New York Times, you know, we were pretty open guys. We were pretty nice, but this was really taxing us. I mean, she wasn't part of the group, and we, we were pretty put off by it. And so John, in Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey, is trying to coerce the group to get with the program, to accept Yoko. You know, come on, it's such a joy. Come on, it's such a joy. Take it easy. Take it easy. I mean, everybody's got problems. Everybody's got something to hide. Well, except me and my monkey, me and Yoko. And, I mean, I don't know how Yoko felt about being referred to as a monkey, but um, John wasn't meaning well, it in a derogatory way. He was just saying, Right, I think you it was know, a term of endearment. Exactly. You know, you, we, you, you guys all have issues. Just get along. Just get along. And he very specifically says that that's what the song was about. So, you know, I don't buy this heroin thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. yes, they were taking heroin, but he wasn't. He didn't try to be devious. When he was writing about drugs, he let you know he was writing about drugs, but this wasn't one of them. <laughs> outstanding. That is outstanding. And that that is a um, musically that song really takes a lot of change from which we'll probably hear a little bit more when we talk about the Easter demos. But um, that that song undergoes uh, a lot of transformation, and uh, yeah. it's it's really terrific to listen it is. to it's, the, the it musicality is of it. Yeah, and it's so John trying. You can hear him trying to coerce Mimi to, you know, don't make me mow the whole yard. I've done half of it. Come on, Mimi. And whenever she would get in trouble with her, he would stand outside the window and make faces at her. And then she would say to him, "Who do you think you are?" And he would say, "Don't you know me? I'm John Lennon." And try to make her laugh and giggle, you know, and he's doing the same thing here. Come on, guys. You know, it's such a joy if you'll just get along with me and do what I want, you know. So, all right, well, quickly, we've got about four minutes before we cut off live, but let's look at side four. And, again, many, many good choices here. I have to mention Good Night, even though Ringo sings it, because, as we know, John wrote it for Julian. Probably the most beautiful song that he ever wrote you have to go back and listen to it again. It is heartbreakingly lovely. He's lost his little boy. He's going to really only see Julian occasionally, and Yoko insisted on overseeing the visits. And they were very stiff and very strained and not comfortable, and they tapered off. And good night is more than just good night when you go to bed. It is, you know, goodbye. And... um it's a really sad song, really, really sad. And so give that one another listen. Um, the instrumentation on it is so beautiful, and it really came from John's heart. I think it ranks up there with In My Life 
is one of his best songs. Um, not, you know, they, we all say, well, Paul's the ballad writer and John's the rock and roll writer. But when you listen to Goodnight, you know he could write a ballad that was as strong as anything that Paul ever penned. Also, Revolution One. just a quick mention about that. Um, you know, Revolution was released as a single, the revolution that we think of. Revolution One is sort of the unplugged version. And I really struggle to understand, and maybe someone listening can clue me in, on why everybody is so gung-ho to have John say, when it comes to destruction, you can count me out in. They all boo when John sings, you can count me out. But when he says out in, I see people go, yeah. I don't understand that. I thought everybody today was for peace and for gun control and for nonviolence and for um, making changes with a plan, changing things but doing it peacefully with a plan, um, Gandhi's plan to to change the world peacefully. And that's what John's saying. He's saying if you want to change things, show me your plan. I'm all for it, but maybe what we need to do as a first step is change our minds instead. Because when it, when you talk about destruction and killing people and murdering people and war, you can count me out. And that's very consistent with his new John self, John 2.0, going into the 1970s, a peace activist. So I really don't get it when people are for the out-in. John was not a violent man under Yoko's tutelage. You go back to the old northern John who beat people up, like Bill Harry, when Bill made that offhanded comment about Brian and John going on the Spanish honeymoon, and John was highly offended by that in reference to the Barcelona trip, and he beat, beat them up for saying it. That was the old John. The new John is going to fight for, march for, stand for peace. And that's what he's saying in Revolution 1. I think we should applaud him for using the strength of peace to effect a change rather than opting for violence. So I really, there's so many. John wrote 50. Songs on the White Album. It could have been a solo album for him. He could have done what Paul did and write them and record them all himself, but he included the group. He always included all of the Beatles and he gave them all important roles, and I think it just made his work so much stronger. I'm kind of a John Lennon fan. Have you noticed that? I did not notice. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm totally bewildered at that statement. <laughs> But um, <laughs> that is so fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. And I've I've been saying this to you so many times, I know you're tired of hearing it, but when I listen to the Esher demos, which we were going to so excitedly discuss later, um, it be, it is overwhelmingly, it's like be, like a blast of cold air being blown in your face this was John's album. the The white album was John's. It the all of the creativity is is in John. Paul always he's a good solid mainstream musician, and he does you know bring in um, lots of earworms and um, you know very snappy snappy little 
lyrics and sounds and, you know, his um, dance hall sound. He does a lot of dance hall sound. And that is all great, and it all adds to the strength of the album. But, but, but this is John Lennon's album. It is absolutely John Lennon's album. Um, and it's really his goodbye with the Beatles, too. So, you know, he always found a way to convert pain into beauty, into music. That was what he did with his pain. He used the pain to weave beautiful songs. And never was he in the pain that he was in in 1968. It was a very traumatic year. So um, it, I think he, he really used it to create a priceless part of the soundtrack of our lives and yeah my head is really off to him because he was hurting hurting deeply but well tell our listeners what we got coming up for them in january lena well we are going to have we have got a lot of fun stuff coming in 2019 what is that number anyway (laughs) Um, what is 2019 (laughs) um so, J.D.'s and Lentz, as our Johnny Lennon would say, we have two very special guests coming up in January who will tell you about another radio show that is taking the Internet by storm. It's called B.C. The Beatles, and it's co-hosted by the lovely Erica White and Allison Boron. And you are going to love these two energetic, smart, and informed radio hosts and Beatles experts. They will be our first guests in January. So please watch your social media, watch your Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we will keep you posted of those dates. And we have lots of other fun guests coming on. By the way, Jude, is there a way that uh, our listeners can hear your interviews on Rod Quinn? Yes. I will post the links. Rod has not. We've not started. We're doing a show for each side of the White Album, and he's still assembling them and putting them together, but I will post it on my Jude Sutherland Kessler's John Lennon series page. I'll put it on our She Said, She Said page, but it's going to be four hours because we're going to take each side and do an hour for each side. In fact, we were supposed to do one tomorrow night, uh, side three, but I am under the terrifying prospect of having possibly a root canal, I hope not, <laughs> and so we are going to postpone till next week, but it's going to be a good series, and I will thank you very much for asking. I will I will post it on my Jude Sutherland Kessler's John Lennon series page and on our She Said, She Said page as well, and hopefully we will get Scott Freeman on the show to do these songs justice very soon, and we will keep people apprised of that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. We we greatly appreciate you tuning in to our show. And even though Scott couldn't be here today, I think that we owe Jude Sutherland Kessler a round of applause for (laughs) pulling out the White Album. Her her expertise is unmatched, my friends. I am telling you, she is fantastic. So until next year, Jude and I want to wish you a blessed Christmas or Hanukkah season and wish you lots of peace with your families and your friends. We wish you much joy and health in 2019, and we wish you food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. 
And we close tonight with a tribute to our John. Three decades later, Johnny, we still love you and we still miss you. God bless you. Shine on. So this is Christmas. And what have you done? Another year over. And you won't just be gone. And so this is... 